Hello and welcome to Avocado Knits once again. It's been a long time since I uh, put an episode out and um, I'm sure some of you were wondering if I was ever coming back and I'm sure some of you left and so you're not listening to what I'm saying. Uh, so there's really no point in talking to you. And by the way, happy Jen in the kitchen. Thank you so much for your comment. Uh, it means a lot to know that somebody is out there who is interested in what I'm doing. So this is for you. I'm doing episode 12 for you, Jen. So let's get started. was A Mutual Misunderstanding from Peter, Bjorn, and John. The Man Who Understood Women by Leonard Merrick. Our bitterest remorse is not for our sins, but for our stupidities. Excerpt from Wendover's new novel. Nothing had delighted Wendover so much when his first book appeared as some reviewers reference to, quote, the author's knowledge of women. Unquote. He was then six or seven and twenty, and the compliment uplifted him the more because he had long regretted violently 
that he knew less of women than do most young men. He yearned to captivate them, to pass lightly from one love affair to another, to have the right to call himself blasé. Alas, a few dances in the small provincial town that he had left when he was eighteen comprised nearly all his sentimental experiences. During his years of struggle in London, he had been so abominably hard up that lodging house keepers and barmaids were almost the only women he addressed, and as his beverage was, quote, a glass of bitter, unquote, the barmaids had been strictly commercial. To be told that he understood women enraptured him. Instinct, he said to himself. Now and then, a man is born who knows the feminine mind intuitively. And in his next book, there was an abundance of his fanciful psychology. Denied companionship with women, he reveled in writing about them and drew from the pages in which he posed as their delineator something of the exultation that he would have derived from being their lover. There were even pages after which he felt sated with conquest. At these times, nothing accorded with his mood so well as to parade the park and pretend to himself that the sight of the most attractive of the women bored him. But as loneliness really cried within him pathetically, he had an adventure culminating in marriage with a shop assistant who glanced at him one evening in Oxford Street. After marriage, they found as little of an agreeable nature to say to each other as might have been expected, so a couple of years later they separated and the ex-shop hand went to reside with a widowed sister who, quote, made up ladies' own materials, unquote, at Crouch End. Gradually, Wendover came to be accepted at his own valuation, to be pronounced one of the few gifted men from whom the feminine soul held no secrets. <laughs> you can imagine who's doing the reviewing. Must have been all men. <laughs> then when he was close on forty, a novel that he produced hit the popular taste, and he began to make a very respectable income. Now, for the first time, he had opportunities for meeting the class of women that he had been writing about, and he found, to his consternation, that they failed to recognize him as an affinity after all. They were very amiable, but, like the farmer with the claret, he, quote, never got any forwarder, unquote. He perceived that his profundities were thought tedious and that his attentions were thought raw. It was a sickening admission for an authority on women to have to make, but when he tried to flirt, he felt shy. At last he decided that all the women whom he knew were too frivolous to appeal to a man of intellect, and that their company wearied him unutterably. But though he had reached middle age, he had never as yet been really in love. In the autumn of his 42nd year, few people judged him to be so much, he removed to Paris. Some months afterwards, in the interests of a novel that he had begun, he deserted his hotel in the Rue d'Antin for a pension de famille on the left bank. This establishment, which was supported chiefly by English and American girls studying art, supplied the color that he needed for his earlier chapters and it was here that he made the acquaintance of Miss Searle. Miss Searle was about six-and-twenty, bohemian and ambitious beyond her talents. Such pensions de famille 
abound in girls who are more or less bohemian and ambitious beyond their talents, but Rhoda Searle was noteworthy. Her face stirred the imagination. She had realized that she would never paint, and the free and easy intercourse of the Latin Quarter had wholly unfitted her for the prim provincialism to which she must return in England. My father was a parson, she told Wendover once, as they smoked cigarettes t together after dinner. I had hard work to convince him that English art schools weren't the apex, but he gave in at last and let me come here. It was paradise. My home was in Beckhampton. Do you know it? It's one of the dreariest holes in the kingdom. I used to go over and stay with him twice a year. I was very fond of my father, but I can't tell you how terrible those visits became to me. How I, had so, how I had to suppress myself, and how the drab women and stupid young men used to stare at me as if I were a strange animal or something improper. In places like Beckhampton, they say Paris in the same kind of voice that they say hell. I suppose I'm a bohemian by instinct, for even now that I know that I should never make an artist, my horror if it isn't so much the loss of my hopes as the loss of my freedom, my, my identity. I am never to be natural anymore. After I leave here, I am to go on suppressing myself till the day I die. Sometimes I shall be able to shut myself up and howl. That's all I've got to look forward to. What are you going to do? asked Wendover, looking sympathetic and thinking pleasurably that he'd found a good character to put in his book. I'm going back, she said, a shining example of the folly of being discontented with district visiting and church bazaars. I go back, a failure for Beckenhampton to moralize over. My old schoolmistress has asked me to stay with her while I look round. You see, I've spent all my money and I must find a situation. If the Beckenhampton parents don't regard me as too immoral, it is just possible she may employ me in the school to teach drawing, unless I try to teach it, and then I suppose I shall be called a revolutionary and be dismissed. She contemplated the shabby little salon thoughtfully and lit another cigarette. From the boule miche for a, to a boarding school, it'll be a change. I wonder if it will be safe to smoke there if I keep my bedroom window open wide. Yes, it would be as great a change as was conceivable, and Rhoda Searle was the most interesting figure in the house to Wendover. She was going to England in a month's time. There was no reason why she should not go at once, save that she had enough money to postpone the evil day. And during this valedictory month, she and he talked of their friendship. In the tortuous streets off the boulevard, she introduced him to humble restaurants where the dinners were sometimes amazingly good at ridiculously low prices. Together they made little excursions and pretended to scribble or sketch in the woods, looked at each other, however, most of the time, and then at evening there was an inn to be sought, and the moon would rise sooner than the friends. And in the moonlight, when they returned to Paris and the Pension de Famille, sentiment would constrain their tones. It was all quite innocent, but to the last degree unwise. The shop assistant still throve decorously at Crouch End on his allowance, and Wendover should have seen that he was acting unfairly toward Miss Searle. To do him justice, he didn't see it. 
he had confided the story of his marriage to her, and it did not enter into his thoughts that she might care for him seriously, notwithstanding. His experiences had given him no cause to esteem himself dangerous, and the lover, who has never received favors, is, in practice, always modest, though in aspirations he may be Juanesque. The suitor of quick perceptions has been made by other women, as everybody but the least sophisticated of debutantes knows. But he, if he did not dream that he might trouble the peace of Miss Searle, he was perpetually conscious that, that Miss Searle had disturbed his own. A month's daily companionship with a temperament plus a fascinating face would be dangerous to any man. To Wendover, it was fatal. His thoughts turned no longer to liaisons with duchesses. His work itself was secondary to Rhoda Searle. Silly fellow as he appears, the emotions wakened in him were no less genuine than if he had combined all the noble qualities with which he invested the heroes of his books. Besides, most people would appear silly in a description which dealt only with their weaknesses. Wendover loved, and he cursed the tie that prevented him asking the girl to be his wife. How happy he might have been! He had feared that the last evening would be a melancholy one. But it was gay. The greater part of it was gay, at any rate. As soon as the door slammed behind them, he saw that she had resolved to keep the thought of the morrow's journey in the background, to help him turn the farewell into a fit. Her laughing caution was unnecessary. Her voice, her eyes, had given him the cue. Her journey was to be undertaken in the distant future. Life was delicious, and they were out to enjoy themselves. He had proposed dining, dining at Armenonville. It wasn't the Paris that she had known. But champagne and fashion seemed the right thing tonight, and no fiacre, I don't know what that word is, had ever before sped so blithely, never had the bois been so enchanting, and never had another girl been such joyous company. After dinner, the ambassadeurs, the program, they didn't listen to much of it. They were chattering all the time. It was only when the lamps died out that he heard a sigh. It was only when the lamps, I, lamps died out that the morning train and the parting and the blank beginning of the afterwards seemed to him so horribly near. The little salon was half dark when they reached the Pension de Famille. Everybody else had gone to bed. Wendover turned up the light, and though she said it was too late to sit down, they stood talking by the mantelpiece. You've given me a heavenly memory for the end, she told him. Thanks so much. I shall be thinking of it at this time tomorrow. So shall I, said Wendover. She took off her hat and pulled her hair right before the mirror. Shall you? Will you write to me? Well, yes, if you'd like me to. I'd more than like it, said Wendover. I shall look forward to your letters tremendously. There won't be much to say in them. They'll be from you. I wish you weren't going. She raised her eyes to him. Why? she asked. Wendover kept silent a moment. It was the hardest thing he had done in his life. If he answered, because I love you, he felt that he would be a cad. 
Besides, she must know very well that he loved her. What good would it do to tell her so? Doubtless she had repented her question in the moment of putting it. Yes, he would be a cad to confess to her. She would think less of him for it. He would cho choose the beau role, and she would always remember that when he might have spoiled their last scene together and pained her, he had been strong, heroic. We've been such pals, he said, that she mightn't underrate the heroism. He turned aside, as the noble fellow in books does, when he is struggling. After a pause, she murmured blankly, It's time I said good night. She went to him and gave him her hand. Her clasp was fervent. It was encouraging to feel that she was grateful. Her gaze held him, and her eyes were wide, dark, troubled. He was sure that she was sorry for him. Good night, my dear, said Wendover, still as brave as the fellow in the books. And when he had watched her go up the stairs, when she had turned again with that look in her eyes and turned away, he went back to the salon and was wretched beyond words to tell, for a fool may love as deeply as the wisest. This was really their goodbye. In the morning, the claims on her were many, and he was not the only one who drove to the station with her. When she had been gone between two and three weeks, he received the promised letter. It told him little but that she was the new drawing mistress of her thoughts, her attitude towards her new life. It said nothing. He replied promptly, questioning her. But she wrote no more, and not the least of his regrets was the thought that she had dismissed him from her mind so easily. He did not remain much longer in the boarding house. His associations hurt him too much. A sandy-haired girl with no ash eyelashes and red ears occupied the seat that had been Rhoda's at the table, and the newcomer's unconcerned possession of it stabbed him at every meal. Having taken precautions against letters for him going astray, he returned to the hotel, and there, month after month, he plodded at his book and tried to forget. Nearly a year had gone by when he stood again on the deck of a channel boat. He had not spared himself, and the novel was finished, and he was satisfied with it. But he was as much in love as he had been on the morning when he watched a train steam from the Gare Saint-Lazare. As he paced the deck, he thought of Rhoda all the time. It excited him that, she was, that he was going to England. He might chance to see her. He might even run down to Beckenhampton for a day or two. It would make the situation harder to bear afterwards, of course, but he looked up Beckenhampton in the railway guide often during the next few days. The distance between them was marvelously short. The knowledge that an hour and a half's journey could yield her face to him again had such a touch of the magical in it. An hour and a half from Hades to Olympus. The longing fevered him. He threw some things into a bag pell-mell one morning and caught the 10.15. The George Hotel, he told the driver, and from the hotel he directed the driver to the school. The little town was gray and drear. He pitied her acutely as he gazed about him from the fly. He understood how her spirit must beat itself against the bars. He realized what her arrival must have meant to her. 
Behind one of the windows of this prison she had sat, looking back upon her yesterday. How the year must have changed her! He wondered if she still smiled. The fly jolted into the narrow high street, and he saw her coming out of the post office. Yes, she still smiled, the smile that irradiated her face and made him forget everything else. They stood outside the post office together, clasping hands once more. Once more. You! What are you doing here? she cried. I was just going to see you. I've just come from the station. How are you? You look very well. I'm all right. Are you back for good? Yes, I left Paris a few days ago. Did you stay on at the pension? Oh, no, I gave that up soon after you went. You finished your book, eh? How did you know? I, I saw something about it in a paper. And how's Paris? I dream I'm back sometimes. Paris is just the same. I suppose you never saw anything of the others afterwards. Kitty Owen or the McAllister girl. No, I never came across any of them. I was working very hard. Well, tell me things. What's the news? You're still at school, then? No. No? Aren't you? I was on my way there. What are you doing? I'm married. The blood sank from his cheeks. Married? I I've been married four months. A woman came between them to post a letter, and he was grateful for the interruption. Let me congratulate you. Thanks. My husband's a solicitor here. You'll come and see us? I'm afraid. Well, I should have been delighted, of course, but I have to be in town again this evening. We'd better move. We're in everybody's way, she said. Will you walk on with me? When does the book come out? In a few weeks' time. I'll send a copy to you. Really? It would be very good of you. I've often looked at the book columns to see if it was published. Have you? I was afraid you'd forgotten all about me. You, you might have written again. You promised to write. I know. Why didn't you, he asked. What was the good? It would have made me happier. I missed you frightfully. I, I think that was why I left the pension. I couldn't stand it when you'd gone. Well, are you happy? Oh, I suppose so. I'm glad. So you won't come see us? It's impossible, I'm sorry to say. As a matter of fact, I didn't mean to see you again at all. Well, that's a pretty compliment. Oh, you know what I mean. It, it seemed better that I shouldn't. But I, I think I'm glad I did. I don't know. I've wondered sometimes whether you understood. We shan't meet any more, and, and I should like you to know. Don't, she exclaimed thickly. For heaven's sake. I must, said Wendover. I loved you dearly. They had walked some yards before she answered. Her voice was a whisper. What's the use of saying that to me now? The bitterness of suffering was in the words. They flared the truth on him, the annihilating truth. My God, he faltered. Would it have been any use... Then? Her face was colorless. She didn't speak. Rhoda, did you care? If, if I had asked you to stay with me, would you have stayed? I don't know.
tell me. Yes, then, I would have stayed, she said hoarsely. Whom should I have hurt? I was alone. I had no one to study but myself. I wanted you to ask me. Stayed? I'd have thanked God if you had spoken. You were blind. You wouldn't see. And now, when it's too late, you come and say it. I wanted to be straight to you, he groaned. I sacrificed my happiness to be straight to you. It was damnably hard to do. I know, but I didn't want sacrifices. I wanted love. Oh, it's no good our talking about it. She stopped and sighed. We shall both get over it, I suppose. Is it too late? pleaded Wendover brokenly. Quite. Things aren't the same. Last year I was free to do as I liked. I have no conventions, but I have a conscience. There's my husband to consider now, and, and more too. I shouldn't be contented like that today. I should have injured others. You and I let our chance slide, and we shall never get it back. Smile and say something about nothing. There are people who know me coming along. And he did not sleep at the George after all. In the next train that left for Euston, a gray-faced man sat with wide eyes, cursing his own obtuseness. And he has not met her since. There is, of course, a brighter side to the history. Although Rhoda is unhappy, she is happier than she would have remained with Wendover when the guilt was off the gingerbread. And though Wendover will never forget her, he cherishes her memory with more tenderness than he would have continued to cherish the girl. But neither she nor he recognizes this, and in Wendover's latest work one may see the line that has been quoted, our bitterest remorse is not for our sins, but for our stupidities. The reception of the novel was most flattering, and as usual the author's, quote, insight into the mind of woman, unquote, has been pronounced remarkable. My apologies to anyone who actually knows how to say those French and English words. I am including a link to the full text of that story in the show notes so you can look it up for yourself and figure it out. You can read this story a couple of different ways. Um, you can obviously read it uh, looking for the ways in which um, the male character is very silly and assumes to know everything about women, and you can uh, make it sort of a, fem a feminist reading, and that would be lots of fun. But what I find most interesting about that story is the misunderstanding that happens on both sides. I mean, obviously, if Rhoda had, had really understood what Wendover was, you know, what was holding him back, she's not the kind of person who would just keep quiet about it. She would have said something. Obviously, she didn't understand where he was coming from either. Well, since I last made a podcast episode, I have started teaching at the local community colleges. And I've taught before, but I haven't taught a formal class all by myself in a while because I've been in school, finishing up my, my doctoral degree. 
So this is my first time teaching in, say, five or six years, with the exception of uh, teaching other kinds of more informal classes to various ages. Uh, this is my first college class in about five years. And uh, about a week ago, or a couple of weeks ago, in one of my classes, there was a huge misunderstanding that happened. It was kind of tragic at the time, and it really disturbed me and made me very concerned because this particular class has been getting along fairly well. Uh, there are a couple of students with you know, very different personalities in the class, but overall, it's been really fun. There's, we've developed a rapport where we can be jokey and funny most of the time, and yet we can still get some good work done, and it's a really enjoyable class. So to have something of, of this stature happen in class was really disturbing. I'll tell you what it is, um, in general, in order to not out um, any of my students on the World Wide Web. <laughs> um, we were doing this exercise where you write down your research topic or your research question at the top of a piece of paper, and then you take that paper and tape it up on the wall, and everyone else in class is doing the same thing. And then you all circulate and look at each other's questions and you write comments underneath that are designed to help that writer to write a better paper. So you can write down um, subtopics or, or related topics that the person might not have thought of yet. You can write down your, your questions about that topic. You can say what you expect to see in a paper. Um, you can write down your initial reaction. What you cannot write down is anything like, oh, good job, or fine, or interesting, because that doesn't carry any useful information to the author. I mean, it might be nice to know that someone thinks that your topic is interesting, but interesting is one of those words that we just say when we can't think of anything else to say. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that your topic is interesting, for one thing. And for another thing, even if it does mean that your topic is interesting, it doesn't say why. How are you supposed to know what is strong about your idea and what maybe you could chuck? Well, more backstory. I'm farsighted and I broke my glasses, my reading glasses, and so at this point in time, uh, I was still waiting for my new glasses to get completed and I wasn't, didn't, you know, I'd, it hurt to read too much. And so since I trusted this class, I just sat in the middle of the room and watched them go around and then I would answer questions as they came up. And I could see well enough, you know, being farsighted to see uh, which papers were getting the most writing on them. And I could say, people, you know, you need to focus on these other papers too, et cetera, et cetera. And I could tell when we were mostly done. When we were done, I had each of the students look at their papers, take their papers down and sit at their desks and look at them, and then we talked about them. And it turned out that um, a couple of the students were really upset about what other students had written on their papers. And one of them was very brave and said something about it right there in class. And of course, I was knocked for a loop. I wasn't expecting anything like that out of this class. And I, I, you know, I never really have had my draw, my jaw drop. You know, I've read about it. I know the expression. I, you know, I always thought of it as mainly figurative, but it totally dropped. I mean, it just went right open and landed on my chest because my head came forward. And <laughs> I was just so, so totally, uh, just, you know, 
sideswiped by this. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I finally just said, I, you know, th th that's a terrible thing to have happen. Um, I'm really surprised. And, you know, because this class gets along so well and I, I'm not sure what to do. And I, you know, hope that you, you guys can just resolve it yourselves because I had, you know, five minutes left of, left of class. What am I supposed to say? Anyway, I thought about it over the weekend, and I got a little more information. I found out what some of these statements were that had made these students so upset. And at least one of them was not intended in any um, hypercritical way at all. It was just not worded very well, and I'll get to that in a minute. And then another one was just a joke and, and not, you know, you could read it as being offensive, but if you knew the person and were friends with the person, you wouldn't. Um, the problem was that the person who had this written on her paper was not friends necessarily with this other person. They sat on opposite sides of the room and they didn't know each other. So anyway, um, when I came back to class the next week, I decided to go back to something that I'd taught the students at the beginning of the semester. And it has to do with how we human beings make knowledge. Now, this is a theory, so um, you can argue with it and say that it works another way. But this is how I see it. And I've drawn it from other uh, theorists as well. And I think I may have mentioned it in previous podcasts. But it goes something like this. There is an objective reality that we cannot know completely. We can only access it through our senses. And our senses are fallible and limited. So we know to, to begin with that we're not able to to know for sure what everything that is going on. Um, but through our senses we gather impressions and we can call these data. And then we think about these data and we try to make sense of them. And when we make sense of them then that's information and we use that information to direct our future actions to interpret um, the activity around us, the data, that, the further data that we receive. Now, if we find that that information is very reliable, then we, can, we grow to consider it to be knowledge, to be fact. If we want to make it knowledge in a social sense, knowledge that other people can rely on as well, <clears throat> well, we share that uh, information and or the, what we might think of as knowledge and other people have the chance to test it out for themselves. We argue about it, we discuss it, we um, think about it some more, and eventually some of what we bring out as individual knowledge gets uh, sort of set in stone for a while uh, as social knowledge. Now, set in stone is probably a misleading term because this process is happening all the time, which means that knowledge facts are always in flux because you have different individuals getting data from reality and interpreting it according, according to their own perceptions and background, their own predisposition, their own need to understand. And so the knowledge that comes out of each person is always going to be different than anyone else's to some degree. You know, there's some things we share, but there's no way that we can all be completely on target and, and uh, completely in agreement with each other because we simply do not have access to information in the same way as everyone else. So I went back over this idea with my students and I said, 
what I've got right here is a situation where there was some reality, there's some objective reality that happened. And I'm still finding out what that was. I'm still gathering information, like I'm gathering in all of their papers to find out what was written on them. Um, but each and every one of you has a perception of what happened and it made some sort of information out of it. And so I'm trying to find out what the best way is to go about um, bringing us all to one central um, point of view where we can move on together. But also something we need to understand is that each and every one of you has a different idea of what happened and why it happened this last week. Some people were offended and other people did things that were found to be offensive, but the motivations could have been totally different. And then I talked about um, the one student of mine who <laughs> um, totally did not mean to be offensive at all, was not even trying to be funny, wrote down on another, on another student's paper, who cares? And he wrote it in great big capital letters and he wrote it like he went over it with his pen two or three times so it was dug into the paper and then he put a big exclamation point question mark exclamation point at the end so <laughs> obviously um, you can read that a couple different ways if you have a background in composition courses if you understand what different teachers might say to students you can understand that who cares is something that these teachers say a lot to say you know to, to say look really hard at your work try to think who will care about this um, and so this student was just doing shorthand perhaps uh, something that he learned from another teacher or this could have just been his own way of trying to express you know, you really need to think about who's going to be interested in your paper and if they're not automatically interested, the people you're aiming for, then you need to find a way to bring them in in the first several paragraphs. Now I had spoken with this student and he had, I said, what do you mean by this? And he told me exactly that. You know, he says, you know, just laid it all out. It was a very good constructive criticism. The problem was it wasn't communicated in the two words and the, the punctuation that he put on the page and the fact that he wrote it in several times, you know, like dug his pen into the paper, made it look like he was putting emotional emphasis on it when he may have just been putting uh, a more sort of academic emphasis into it. Well, of course, the student who got this on her paper was very upset because she felt that um, he was saying that her topic was stupid. So we talked about this in class a little bit, and I didn't say, you know, and he meant, you know, he meant it this way, and she interpreted it this way. I let the students speak for themselves, but I did write on the board what it was. You know, I had the student tell me, the student who had written it, I had him tell me what to write. And so I wrote that really big, like he said, and then I said, and what did you mean by this? And he explained. And But of course, all the class was kind of giggling because it looks really, you know, startling when you write it really big like that. Um, and then... Um, I turned to the student who had been offended and said, and how did you feel? Well, before I said, how, what did you mean? I said, it was obvious that, it, that my, my male student had written it because he told me what to write. I turned to the female student and said, how did you feel when this showed up on your paper? And she was very clear about how she felt. And then I turned to the male student and said, what did you actually mean? And so he explained, and so I pointed out, this would be a really good constructive criticism, but the way it's written, it doesn't communicate all of that to the reader to the person who's going to write this paper. 
So let's talk about it and see what other ways we can come up with to say this. And so uh, they, the class threw out some really good suggestions. And um, the atmosphere in the class was a lot better after that. Um, I think everything's going to be okay there. But something else happened after class. One of the students who'd been offended in the first place came up to me and said, now that we've seen that what was going on really wasn't as bad as we thought it was. She said the person who'd offended her on her paper had actually come up to her and apologized um, after class the last time. She says, now we've seen it, it wasn't quite as bad as we thought. She said, I don't want you to think that you can't depend on me, you know, that, that I'm overreacting. She said, I'm really frightened, I'm really afraid that this is what you think. And um, I told her, you know, uh, I understand where you're coming from. You know, on the one hand, I have to be really careful as the teacher and take into account that each person is coming from a different place and I have to find a way for all of us to move forward from this place where we are. So that's how I have to deal with the class. But I understand that you have your background that teaches you that some of these things that people do are dangerous that they are often precursors to something worse. And I respect that. So basically I think of you as the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> it's not that what you're sensing isn't real. It's that you may be a little more sensitive to it than other people. They may not think anything is happening at all. But you, with your experience, it seems very clear that something is. And um, so, I, you know, I take that as an indication that, that there is something to pay attention to, but I have to figure out how to deal with it in a way that's going to benefit everyone in the class. That went over okay. That went over fine, I think. But it also made me start to think about my recent issues with my mother. <laughs> if you listen to, the, to episode number 11, then um, you know that there's stuff going on with me and my mom. Now, I love my mom and I admire her. I think she's done wonderful things in her life and she's had a lot of hard stuff to deal with. So um, I, I really respect where she's come from and where she is now. However, since my perspective, my meaning making is different than hers and neither of us is willing to um, well, let's say, let's put it this way. I can see where she's coming from, but I don't think she can see where I'm coming from. And I need to feel that I am among friends who accept that my version of reality <clears throat> at least has some merit. That means I have to be more careful how I interact with my mother. Now, like I said, I admire her. I love her. Um, I think that she's doing very good work with her writing. I'm proud of her. Um, but as her knowledge making is different than mine, and it's important to say for myself what my reality is, um, I have to be careful about how much I allow my mother to define my experience and and who I am as a result of it. 
Uh, it may seem strange to some of you that I am so vehement about being an abuse survivor, and my mother wants to say that it really wasn't so bad. It's because the different illnesses that I have are, according to the knowledge that we have now, the, the um, scientific and academic knowledge that we have available to us right now, what ails me <laughs> is partly genetically, um, I, I have a genetic, genetic predisposition, we think, to developing these sorts of disorders, but there has to be some sort of environmental trigger, like PTSD, which um, I had a version of, or either, either full-on PTSD or a mild version of it for a while. Um, there has to be an event or a series of events that triggers it. And if my mom, if her reality can say, there were no such events, then I'm right back to where I was when I was growing up, where um, what I felt and what I thought was always shot down by the people around me and I was always told you're off, you're misperceiving, um, you are not connected to reality. And <laughs> you know since I've grown up and moved away I've come to find out that I'm really really smart and I'm really perceptive and thoughtful and I am just simply unwilling to go back to letting people who are not as thoughtful as I am, not as perceptive, not as willing to really engage with the difficulties of our shared life. I'm gonna have, you know, I'm just not willing to go back and say your perception takes precedence over mine she gets to define an awful lot of what is considered reality within my family. So I needed some place, like the podcast, where I could say, this, this is my reality, and there is a record of it. So I hope you're willing to bear with me and the, the downer that, <laughs> that uh, episode 11 was. Um, um, so anyway... Enough about my life. My mother, who again, I, I say again, um, I'm proud of. She's uh, doing very well, and um, I think her books are very good. She should have another book coming out in the next year or so, so pay attention and go find it. Um, but for right now, I think we just have to be, or at least I, am content saying there's no way that she is going to understand me. I think I understand her pretty well, but in this case, no two-way street. Nobody really understands 
what it is I'm saying Everyone's so scared of thinking They're So scared of changing We can all deny it Like everything's fine But that's never gonna work In my See the world spinning by slowly to the ground. And I can see every face that doesn't know me spinning around, around, spinning can't comprehend this love that I'm showing I'm not telling myself any lies and I refuse to overt Spinning by slowly to the ground. And I can see every face that doesn't know me. Spinning around, around, spinning That was Nobody Really Understands by Dan Coyle. Since I've been away from this podcast for so long, I thought it was worthwhile to take a few minutes in this podcast and give you some updates on some things that I'm doing. My husband's gone on a trip back to his hometown to visit some of his friends, and I'm here in the office with the rats. They're running around, and I've got the sweet life of Zach and Cody on the TV with the sound turned way down. For some reason, my remote is not working. It's been doing this a couple of times a week, and in between, it works just fine. I don't understand it. I've changed out the batteries, and it doesn't make any difference. The two rats that are out running around right now are McGee and uh, Gibbs, and Gibbs has gotten fat. He weighs more than a pound now, and McGee is his own... um, inquisitive, energetic, and aggressive self. I have started to love him a little bit more though because I decided that maybe he was getting uh, anxious and and pushy because I was disciplining him so much and he didn't understand why and so I decided just being more loving to him and he perked up and he's much easier to deal with now. 
I miss my husband very much when he goes away. It's just, <laughs> it's not fair because he doesn't miss me as much as I miss him. He misses me a normal amount. I think he just assumes that everything's fine and I'm coming back. But then me with my anxiety problems, <laughs> he goes away and I start missing him terribly and um, I have to do all kinds of things to take my mind off it. Um, one of the things that I have done um, over the past year, not just about him, but whenever I was in a stressful situation, I started at the habit of eating lots and lots of sugar and chocolate as a way to deal with my emotions. And as you know, that has side effects. I told, I've told you that I gained about 30 pounds in the last year. Well, that has made it more and more difficult to finish my sweater that I've been working on, the Joe Sharp sweater. Uh, and it's just discouraging when you're not sure if it's going to fit when you finish it because you've gotten bigger since you started knitting it and it's only been a few months. So then also when I started teaching I just set it aside for a while because I was very busy and also I was working on a new novel. I decided that I wanted to teach part-time at the community colleges and write fiction since that's been something I've wanted to do my whole life. I've been doing it my whole life so and I even got a master's degree in it so I might as well use that and make myself happy by accomplishing a goal that I've always dreamed of achieving which I'm perfectly capable of achieving if I just put in the time and the energy. So I'm working on a new novel and I've told you a little bit about the story that I'm working on. It's the, it's the one that I um, changed from the the Barnaby and the Hookie Pookie Birds. Um, so this has nothing to do with Barnaby and the Hookie Pookie Birds now. It's a totally different story, but um, that's the one that I'm working on. Haven't had a lot of time to work on it in the past month either with all of the demands of teaching and since I broke my glasses, it was very hard to work on the computer. But I am making good progress. I joined SCBWI, the Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and I'm going to a couple of different writing groups, and I've met some good friends, one of which we I um, get together with regularly to talk about the theory of writing, which most people don't seem to want to do. Um, I haven't met with her in about a month, to be honest, because things have been so hairy. But I fully intend to meet with her again, if she'll have me. So those, that's the update from, from this front. Oh, and I got my new glasses this last uh, Friday, so for me yesterday. And I really like them. They're fun, and they're sort of a riff on the cat's eye glasses, although uh, I don't know that you would think of that if you were just looking at them without me telling you that. Uh, they're a Jones New York frame, and I really, really like them. I will try to find an image of them that I can put on the blog. Maybe I'll just take a picture and put it on the show notes there. One of the things that I have started to do to give me positive ways to address my <clears throat> emotional distress <clears throat> instead of eating lots of sugar and chocolate, uh, one of the things I've started to try to do is to exercise more. That's been hard because I got plantar fasciitis over the summer in both feet and it was really bad and I followed the directions uh, that it that were given in a couple of different rehab books that I was able to get out of the library and 
Um, they're supposed to be really good ones, but it just didn't work very well. You know, that told me to uh, ice it up, stretch it out, and lie on the couch. Well, I did that. Still didn't improve. And then my doctor, my GP, general practitioner, said, you have to exercise and you need to stretch it out after you exercise and then you need to stretch it out every single day and you know several times a day which I thought okay you know the stretching was part of the original instructions but I hadn't heard that I needed to exercise it more and and so I thought I would be very careful and just start out slow and I, I was able to get myself a, a membership at a local gym over the Christmas break because they had a special other you know on the the um, entrance fees Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And then the month-to-month -month fees are $20, and I can afford that. So, and it's nice and clean. It's got fairly new equipment, and the people are non-threatening. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I've been doing that um, two or three times a week. And, you know, it's gotten up to the point where the plantar fasciitis really doesn't bother me that much anymore. And I'm able to do interval training a bit and walk for about an hour every time I go. Uh, I ice my feet afterwards and I elevate them according to directions, 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off with the ice. And uh, and I stretch right after I, I get done. But, you know, I do about a 10 minute, or this last time I did about a 10 minute walk and then I did um, a 30 second jog and a one minute walk and a 30 second jog and a one minute walk. And I did those intervals for 40 minutes and that's amazing not just because of the plantar fasciitis but because I have asthma and my asthma medications kind of ran out this week and I had to order refills and they haven't gotten here yet so for the past week week and a half I haven't been able to take my full regimen excuse me regimen of medications and I'm talking steroids and snorts and pills and, you know, <laughs> everything, state-of-the-art medication uh, regime here for asthma. And I was able to do um, those sequences of running. Oh, I've got rats who are having a hard time getting out of the garbage. Let me go and get them out of here. Hey, guys. You need help? It looks like you need help. Yeah. Gibbs, can you get out? Are you okay? They had gotten, I keep the, the wastebasket in the office, third to a half full of stuff that they can get in and dig around in. It's something that pet rats love to do. Yes, hello, hello. Um, and um, Gibbs had gotten in there and then McGee climbed in there and was harassing Gibbs so that he was back, on, like rolled back on his hiney, so his tail under him and, and his feet up in the air. and and he was trying to defend himself and he couldn't get up and he couldn't get out. So I had to come and take Mickey away and let, let Gibbs get out of the garbage. Anyway, so um, I was just really impressed with myself that I was able to do this. Now, of course, I was really, really tired afterwards because I was using muscles that I wasn't used to using. And, and so I have waited since Wednesday and I'm gonna go back to the gym today instead of going back, say, yesterday. 
and I'm expecting to have a good experience there, but I might have to go back to just walking today since my feet are still sore. Um, and I'll just move up gradually. I'm also reading Runner's World magazine, which I get from my local library. Yay, public library! That is just so inspirational. I just love this magazine. I mean, yes, it's all about running, and I'm not really a runner yet, but it's one of the most uplifting magazines that I, ha that I read on a regular basis. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's, it's not uplifting in a schmaltzy, sentimental kind of way. It's uplifting in a, you know, we do hard things and um, not all of them are glamorous and, and you can do hard things too sort of way. And it can be, it can improve your life and make you happy and help you live longer and help you overcome major challenges. Oh, it's good. You got to read it. It's just good stuff. I've found that when I get on that treadmill, it's it only takes a few minutes before suddenly I feel that, I feel a euphoria, a sense of just calm and peace and happiness. And it's not the runner's high. I won't, I haven't done anything at that point in that session to deserve or to develop the, the endorphins that create that runner's high. What I have done is started participating in an activity that feeds my soul. Who'd have thunk? Who, you know, what kind of couch bunny? <laughs> I don't like the word couch potato, but couch bunny who likes to knit, likes to sit down and read, likes to do things on her butt. What kind of couch bunny would expect to love to walk and run. Eh, go figure. So I'm going to leave you with uh, one of my favorite songs, one of my new favorite songs. It's by Jonathan Colton. Um, it's called uh, Better. <laughs> and it's about changing within a relationship. And uh, sometimes you think, one person may think that, that that change is for the better, and another person may not. Enjoy! Where did we go? When was the moment that we broke into? I think I know. In fact, I am sure I can blame it on you. I remember the first big surprise. The day you came home with your infrared eyes. I looked inside them, but all I could see were tiny reflections of me. But it's not me, it's you. What you're turning into is some kind of something that I never knew It used to be okay, I like you that way But I don't think that I like you better No, I don't think that I like you better Started out small Some gills and some wings and a few extra things you're 13 feet tall Even when you're asleep Your machinery hums And I'm tired of the evenings I spend Making small talk with your new robot friends And their stupid insistence on scanning my iris They know damn well who I am And you look like a victim 
victim of a surgical crime A little Darth Vader, a little Optimus Prime You used to be okay and I liked you that way But I don't think that I like you better No, I don't think that I like you better how it goes Snap your mandibles once to say you understand Now hold me close Wait, now that's too close You're crushing my hand I can tell by that shrieking alarm Your weapon systems are active and armed Do me a favor Power them down Just so we don't have a scene And I wish it was different but we're just not the same At least we got someone we know we can blame You used to be okay and I liked you that way But I don't think that I like you better No, I don't think that I like you better All the songs in this podcast were provided by Mevio.com.